All right, y'all, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. We have someone amazing for this episode, Monique Dusan, the president, El Presidente, the, the queen <laughs> yes. of the Center for Biblical Unity. Yes. So here we go. I don't know if this All right, so we're back with our friend Monique here, who we got to meet a couple years ago at Impact 360. If you hadn't sent your kids there yet, then you're not a good parent. I'm just telling. I'm just, <laughs> but you need, but you need to get your kids Let's out too. Get your kids. <laughs> get your kids, man. Put them in that Propel or Immersion. We're always at Immersion. It's an amazing worldview uh, training every year. Uh, and I was so glad when I saw them uh, bringing Monique and Krista yes. in a couple years ago. When all this stuff with with critical theory, critical race theory was starting to hit, and you know, I've I, at first I noticed a lot of apologetics um, organizations that seemed like they didn't want to really touch that issue, um, and it was you know because it was it was kind of hitting people. I think knew they just weren't aware of it maybe or they didn't have the the depth of understanding to be able to address it but i was so glad that it impact they were like man this is super important we got to bring someone in and these two ladies are amazing we yes, got a uh, monique is 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 half of that organization and just just maybe to start it off do you mind just sharing a little bit with our listeners about your background um just how you got into this ministry my, my understanding was that you kind of came into this that at first, like you and Chris's friendship, y'all weren't seeing eye to eye on this issue. So it's been a bit of a journey. So if you can just, just, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So, um, gosh, I am born and raised, um, in South central Los Angeles and living in LA, a lot of the conversation about white people and about how the world, um, especially America treats black people is just common knowledge. Like I can just give somebody a look when a white person's around and be like, you know what, you know this, that's them. They, they're a little racist. It's a little something. And so that was, that was just common. Like that was how we were raised. That was the, the, conversation in the house, the conversation at school, the conversation on the street. And so when I went to school, when I went to university and I will be, you know, transparent, I went to Biola, which is a small Christian college out here in LA. Um, a lot of what I learned in my sociology class, I was a sociology major, just kind of reinforced the narrative that I was taught on the street and living in LA. And so when I met Krista, who is, um, co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity, we began having conversations about race and justice and unity. And I, you know, approach things from a very specific lane, which is more of the critical race theory lane. And she approached things from a more historically biblical position as far as the definition of you know, justice, the definition of unity, what does reconciliation look like? Is race even a biblical concept? And so we would clash and have these arguments and, you know, weren't we weren't landing anywhere together usually. There were some things, you know, where I changed my mind on or she changed her mind on and, you know, we began to to agree to disagree maybe a little bit, but um, I remember praying for her, you know, for her to see her whiteness one day. And in the <laughs> middle, yeah, hey, 
and you gotta pray. Ner- keep, keep Nerva walks around the prayer. house praying that for me all the time. Yes, there it is. In the so, patriarch, she I says I'm patriarchal. So, yes, you know, you know we. I was like, Lord, help her with her Christian nationalism. No. <laughs> um, so, but in in praying and in like like I was earnest, y'all. Mm. <laughs> um, I thought I was doing what was well and right in his eyes. Um, I started to get convicted in my own heart about like my own level of racism, my own level of othering. And, you know, what does it mean to to actually be a Christian and hold a very partial position towards someone? What does it mean to be a social justice warrior? And the, as the Lord began to really work in my own heart, like aside from my conversations with Krista, I began to see like, OK, there there is something to racism and racial injustice. Like I don't deny racism and racial injustice. And as a Christian, there's a distinctly unique approach to um, handling that and to investigating to see if something truly is racism or racially unjust, you know, whatever. And so it led me to repent for my attitude, for the way that I had been um, even just addressing her. Cause I, I'm, I was clear she was racist. You know, and racist according to the definition of like prejudice plus power. Mm. And she wasn't able to see her, you know, participation in racism because of her whiteness. If she would cry, she had white tears. Um, she was fragile. Like, y'all, I wasn't nothing nice. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, you know, on the back end of things, she wasn't nothing nice either. Like, we both have had our own journey in having to have some of these conversations. Mm. I just tend to be very direct and like, this is what it is. Um, But I also had to, you know, when the Lord said, no, this isn't the way or that when that was impressed upon my heart, like there's something, there's something amiss. There's Mm -hmm. just something not quite right. And I could not put my finger on it for the longest time. And so that took me into scripture. That took me to listening to people that I would never have listened to. I would never have listened to Virgil Walker. I would have never listened to Vodi Mm -hmm. Bakum because they wasn't black. Like, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I've I've told them this, like I've told them like, you know, (laughs) when Krista like trapped me in the car and had me listening to y'all, I was like, and she was like, they're black. And I'm like, no, they're not. So, you know, these aren't, you know, secret things, but um, the the process of, you know, moving outside of critical race theory and having my paradigm like deconstructed to having God rebuild the foundation as being a foundation you know, firmly planted in Jesus and what that means. What does it mean to be brothers and sisters? What does it mean to be family and to be united, to know that we are reconciled? That's what God had to walk me into, mm. like, and still not denying, you know, racism. We're, we're not, no one in, in this is a racism denier. But I can also acknowledge that white people can also experience racism. Um, the Center for Biblical Unity was birthed out of that, out of, mm. um, 
you know, how do we have these conversations with believers in a way that can actually be helpful and bring unity or not, not even bring unity because I believe our, our unity is an ontological reality. I believe mm-hmm. that it's something that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, but how do we maintain unity? How do I walk with somebody else in unity? I think this was a lot of Krista's challenge to me was mm-hmm. you're all about this racial reconciliation, but yet you demean me over on this side. So you're actually only about racial reconciliation to the point that it suits you. Mm. You know, you're you're about racial reconciliation as long as white people have something to do, but black people don't really have that much to do because you already assume that you're at the table not being racist. Mm. So there was a lot of challenge. You know, there was there was a lot of clash and a lot of challenge, but CFBU was birthed to be able to have conversations that could really help believers to move into um, conversations of maintaining unity and understanding that what the culture is offering us and telling us we must do, we don't have to listen to that. Like you don't have to abide by the cultural mandates. You know, we have, um, we have our rule book, we have the scriptures and they are what we need for life and godliness. It's great that people do research and, you know, I studied sociology. I, I believe that sociology can be a helpful field. And yet I can't put my sociological textbook above the book of scripture. Mm. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing happen in culture today. Yeah. Wow. That's, 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 that's very interesting. And I, y'all do, y'all still argue it out pretty good on your show, which I love. (laughs) Oh yeah. I don't play no games. (laughs) Y'all are hilarious, man. I watched one. In fact, like, so if anybody's listening and you don't listen to Center for Biblical Unity, I would highly encourage you. Y'all just did an episode yesterday. In fact, that was you know, something not a lot of people touch. It was like hire, I think hiring policies with diversity in the workplace. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's a big, big question. Like, cause a lot of even Christian churches and universities and organizations are hiring, um, trying to make their, their staff or their faculty or whatever more diverse, quote unquote, according to one line of diversity. And you have the whole departments dedicated to that. And you guys really went into depth on that and discussed like, man, what is what is the biblical position on this? And and, and the way you talked about it was not in a, a surfacey way. So I really appreciate that about y'all's organization. But maybe maybe real quick too, uh, and this may be um, you could do the super short version. We did a whole episode with Neil Shinvi a, a while back. If you're listening, you want to go back and listen to like the nature of CRT. But real quick, since you were kind of steeped in that, you weren't just the casual CNN listener. You know, you it's not like you really knew your stuff and you were going at it with Krista on that. But can you give us a short snapshot of CRT and how it informs the social justice movement and maybe compare that to the biblical perspective? Yeah, so... Um, I'm going to read from Critical Race Theory, an introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanich on the definition of critical race theory, because I don't want to misquote anyone. Um, And it is under the subheading, what is critical race theory? The critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. So when we think about critical race theory, one of the first things we should think about is that it's a movement. 
And it's meant to move society. It's meant to transform society and society's relationship to race, racism, and power. Power undergirds everything. We hear about power dynamics all of the time. Who are the marginalized and why are why are they marginalized? They are the marginalized because of power dynamics. They are oppressed because they don't have the power, um, economic power, societal power. Um, and so when we think of what is critical race theory, we have to remember that it is a movement that is meant to shift or to transform society's relationship, the way they participate with race, racism, and power. The way we have historically participated with race, racism, and power has been that white people have the, the economic power. They they are the ones who sit up at the top. They sit in the, the, the place of the CEOs. Um, they sit in places of um, like legislation and judges and, you know, all of these things. And so um, the the CRT movement is really meant to transform that. The question we should be asking is how do they want to transform it? Mm. Mm. What does that transformation look like? And to what lengths are they willing to go to make sure that they achieve transformation? I believe that when we look out into culture, especially at, at, during 2020, the, the rise of riots, you can see our nation's leaders saying things like, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at riots. It is a goal of transforming our relationship with power. And um, you see this in conversations of the redistribution of wealth. And I lived in South Africa for a number of years, looking at in their context and in Zimbabwe's context, the redistribution of land. Mm. You know, how how do we look at power and how is power being transformed in our current cultural moment? This is this is the question that we should ask. But critical race theory itself is the movement to transform the the relationship between race racism and power it's the vehicle that people will use to do that oh will you talk to us about how that compares to biblical justice and race reconciliation well biblical justice looks at what is what is um fair what is what is righteous what is um you know gosh when we consider a, a biblical idea. I don't. I don't even. I can't. I can't even say that critical race theory would be on on the the shelf. Um, we are told that we should not take bribes and we should not participate with people according to partiality. Racism is a form of partiality, and we do not. It's it's a form of I would say ethnic partiality. You can mix it in with a little slander, a little hatred. You know, get your little partial concoction, but. Um, <laughs> But when we think of critical race theory and some of the tenets of critical race theory, we have the assumption um, and and I would say the, the proclamation that all white people participate in racism. I would say that there we that that's an assumption that still needs to be proven. I would say that, um, you know, saying that all systems are implicitly biased or implicitly racist and bent toward white people. I would say, mm, the, I haven't seen the data that shows that every system in America is, is impacted with racism. There's the idea that black people cannot be racist. And so just in those three things alone right there, I would say one, there's a way in which one group of people can sin that another group can't. Um, there is an assumption or a, a claim made without evidence, but we are expected to be to to jump onto this narrative and say, well, yes, because they are the majority, because white people are the majority, well, they must be participating this way. We don't have you know, strong structural evidence for 
every system in America to claim that every system has now been impacted by whiteness. You know, am, am I um, a proponent of investigation? I sure am. And I would say, hey, look, if if there are ways that people are being un- in unjustly treated, then let's look at the the numbers on that. Let's look at the data and then let's figure out how to use our voice, you know, our vote and our dollar to impact that and to shift that. Um, But we don't have that. I think that, um, you know, in looking at the biblical position and righteousness, the scriptures teach us, one, how do we worship the correct God correctly? So how do I have a relationship with God? What does it look like to live a holy life? Mm. But then two, I'm told how to participate with my neighbor. When you look at someone like Ibram Kendi, who says that in order for us to um, erase disparity, and I am not directly quoting him, but in order to erase disparities or to get to equality, we might have to treat people unequally. We might have to disparage other people. That's not a biblical concept. Hmm. The This idea of, um, you know, in order to get to equality or in order to be done with racism, I might have to be racist toward a group of people. The the words and, and, and the way that scripture is laid out is that, you know, we treat people um, without partiality. And so I don't see a, a model like Kendi's of treating people or disparaging some people in order to create equality for others as a biblical concept. I also don't think that there is, you know, a certain work that some people must do that other people don't have to do. For example, when you look at the critical social theories, you know, white people need to lament of their whiteness and repent of their whiteness and, you know, become an ally. Like there's a whole litany of works that white people have to do that black people don't necessarily have to do. There's an assumption that we are already in this work to a degree. When we look at things like Ephesians 4, we see what's laid out for all believers. And, you know, the the words of, um, you know, don't show partiality or favoritism to the rich and don't don't show it to the poor isn't just for white people. And it's not just for black people. It's for believers. How do we treat one another as believers? And so I think the the crux of what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that um, the lane of critical theory or critical race theory has its own own tenets um, and principles to live by, and Christianity does as well. I think the Christian lane, though, gives us a a stronger footing for a more hopeful end. Mm. That's great. And I know you're just having to, like I said, skim the surface there. So there's so much, and you guys do such a great job on your, in your podcast, on your videos, talking through that in depth. Um, what do you, you know, clearly we're, we're having issues right now in the church. Like all this cultural stuff is, is moving and shaking. Fault lines are developing. Churches are splitting. Families are breaking up. All kind of stuff is going on. But, um, now that you guys have been doing this work for a little bit, like what, what do you recommend? Like, uh, I know you're you're in the biblical unity thing. Maybe talk a little about what is biblical unity with regard to race, and then what do you recommend as far as like navigating all these what can be confusing waters for people with this issue? Yeah, so biblical unity in regards to race, I think the first step would be to understand that race is a social construct, that the the way that we participate with race today is not a biblical concept at all. There is one race. And if we are going to be biblical about it, we will participate with people from that position that 
there is the human race. I have more melanin than some, you know, than Krista, but we are not um, like so different that we would be, you know, uh, this this different race altogether. Now, do we have different mm-hmm. ethnicities, different, um, you know, nations of origin? Sure, different cultures. We can talk about that. Yes, but the biblical, I think one of the first um the one of the first steps in getting to a biblical position of unity is understanding that truly there is only one human race. Now, that being said, I think even more central to that is keeping Christ as our foundation. Mm. How do we understand that that we um, we are Christian and Christ has afforded something through his death, has afforded us a unity that we cannot create on our own. I think this is what um, differs between Christianity and the social theories is that the social theories will say, you can get to unity, you can get to racial reconciliation by doing these things. Christianity say, you ain't got nothing that that you're gonna be able to do on your own. Like. If you want to get to unity, come into the kingdom. Mm. And then you understand that once you're in the kingdom, he gave the right to become a child of God to you once you came into the kingdom. Mm. That's John 1, 12. Um, And understanding Jesus' prayer in John 17, but then looking at Ephesians and looking at what it means to be to be a child of God um, and understanding that it was to God's good pleasure understanding that we are heirs, understanding that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. There are some foundational tenets that we have to understand as children of God and understand um, understanding those things is what makes us family. Like I can't, we can unify around anything. We can unify around cake. Like I, I'm all for the cake unity. But if we don't unify around what's most important, we're going to have problems. And I think this is what we're seeing in the church is that there are many people who want to claim the name of Jesus, and yet their unity is first around a sociological textbook. Mm. Our unity first has to be around the scripture and committed to what the scripture is saying. And I know that, like, like I said, I'm not a racism denier. I am not saying that racism doesn't exist. What I am saying is that if we are going to be a voice into culture, the only way we can do that is by making sure that we stand firmly planted on the word and that we are moving forward from the word first, not Mm. from the sociological principles first. Mm. Wow, so good, Monique. Many like in uh, in the church right now and even like in public school systems, they're sort of like kind of renaming it or distancing themselves from the title CRT, but yet keeping the tenets of it. Do you find that to be the case? Have you seen that some? I I have. And, and, I, and in fairness, I don't think anyone is going around school and, um, you know, teaching Kimberly Crenshaw. No one is teaching, okay. um, you know, Richard Delgado or Derek Bell. But what they're doing is they are... Gosh, they're walking out the 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 methodology. So it's the praxis mm. of the ideology. So just because your you know first grader doesn't know the term interest convergence, which is a tenet within critical race theory, 
they might be able to understand what it means to be an ally to someone who is black. They may be able to understand that, you know, white people have always um, been oppressors or have always been mean to people of color. They've always treated people of color badly. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be age appropriate, still the same tenant. Or, um, you know, for the the interest convergence, you know, tenant, it could be something like, well, you know, I need to be able to um, help end racism and racism will only truly end once I do my part because with the the tenet of interest convergence, it says that racism will only end once, you know, white people basically say it'll end or do what needs to be done to bring mm. it to an end. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. You know, um, you talked about being, being biblical first and, and really having that as a foundation and, and, and then interpreting other like sociological texts through that lens rather than vice versa. Well, what do you like, how do you help people that, you know, they, they haven't understand the Bible, but the thing about these um, critical social theories is they, often will redefine terms and it's very, very confusing and tricky for people who don't have a background in, in philosophy or postmodernism that they don't know how to, to think through that clearly. So there, I know you guys recently did a, like a walk through that documentary unspoken. So, you know, your typical person, the pews will probably watch that. And like, we've watched it happen in church, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the lady who come to us and you can tell she's got like white guilt has filled up her eyes. You're like, what did you watch? You know, yeah. what'd you listen to? And it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost kind of funny at times if it wasn't sad, but, um, it's, it, it can be very tricky. So what, what are some steps that you recommend maybe to pastors or, or leaders in churches to say, Hey, here's what you can do to help people see through the, the, the smoke and mirrors of it all. Yes. Uh, the first thing I would say is please don't just jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. without having done your due diligence and research. So many pastors, especially in 2020, didn't necessarily know what to do. And so mm -hmm. as soon as something came along that sounded good, you know, that yeah. kind of pricked at their heart, they were, OK, let's do that. Black Lives Matter. You know, oh, that yeah. that sounds good. You know, we need to support Black Lives Matter. No, 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 no. Wait, hold on. You know, so I would say that would be the first thing is like, just slow down and encourage your mm. people to slow down. You know, we don't have to um, address every cultural issue just because that is what culture is saying we must mm. do. Right. So slow down, think about like, and not, not even think about it, but go to the word where... You know, how can we apply the scripture to the situation that's right before us? Mm. Pray about it. Do other research. Get other evidence. Talk about it. Like, let it mull over. Don't just decide to run with the mob and, you know, now you put out some kind of, you know, unity statement that affirms all of this critical theory lingo because you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, so I think that would be the first thing that I would just really encourage people to do is just slow down. Like we don't have to be jolted just because culture is jolted. We can mm. still be firm. Our, our foundation is still the same. Jesus. Mm. Um, the second thing I would say is just make sure that you know the word of God. 
so that when you do the third step, which would be, you know, dig into some first sources, see what people are saying. Can you, you know, define some of these terms, get together with people who do know these terms so that you can, you know, you can learn, join a center for biblical unity book group where we're looking at first sources and we're talking about the, the issues from a firsthand perspective. Um, yeah, I, w- I would say get in and, and kind of dig in and understand what's happening. You don't have to be an expert on it. Yeah. But there are things that you can do to equip yourself because the true goal is for this to be um, to, for this for this to impact your kid. Like yeah. the goal is to transform your kid the next Mm. generation. So how do we as adults live and participate in a way in which we can protect our kids from the ideology that's really um, coming in to kind of siphon them off? Uh, That's really good. And you know, that that's the part that, that can be hard too. Sometimes I think uh, because you said this before, it's kind of, it's a lens, it's a worldview. So I think when people don't understand that it, it comes with this whole package, this whole coherent framework of thinking. And so when people begin to engage with these issues, it's like they're talking from completely different presuppositions about the same thing. And so it's like some people get flustered. They're like, man, I don't even think we're having the same conversation. And it can be really difficult to continue in that conversation. But I think what I love about y'all's story is like you and Krista walked that through for a couple years or whatever it was, however long it was. And you like we can see in you the value of of continuing even when mm-hmm. it's hard to in love, like have these tough conversations and, and try to the best you can give, give a biblical view on these issues. But it, you've been doing this now for a few years, I think. Um, have you had much success in helping people that were starting to adopt that really anti-biblical worldview? Have you had success in bringing them back to a more biblical perspective by the grace of God? Yes. And I think that's what's awesome. Um, I've had a number of one-on-one conversations with people and, you know, like relationships develop. And there's one woman that I'm thinking of um, in particular, and she was so angry. You know, I remember um, her writing in and being like, how can you say this? And that's just divisive and da 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 um, And so we reached out and we had a conversation. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I'm, I'm not you know, opposed to um, being wrong, you know, I, I can be wrong. So why don't, why don't, you know, we have this conversation, let's figure out what I'm p- possibly missing. And mm. we sat and we talked and the biblical worldview wins out every mm. time. Like if, if you are committed to having a biblical worldview, the biblical worldview wins out every time because Christ offers a better hope. And, you know, like we still text back and forth and this was in 2020. That's awesome. Wow. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, when Krista and I go and we we speak at different places and people who may be, you know, either confused or more CRT leaning when they hear our story and see how, you know, truly black and white, we can work together. We can truly have a partnership and a friendship. People are like, oh, okay, so it doesn't have to be the narrative that I'm believing, or it doesn't have to be the narrative that I'm, I've been told I have to believe. Um, and yeah, we see that a lot. That's good. Is there, are there any tips? I know there's no silver right. bullet, but what are the tips in those yeah. conversations? What are the like, things to avoid, things to, to do? Be patient. Mm-hmm. I would definitely yeah. say be patient, be prayerful. Um, 
ask questions instead of just condemning and being like, you're just wrong because blah, blah, blah. You know, asking things like, well, you know, gosh, what, what's your, what's your biblical warrant for that? Um, you know, can you, Krista asked me, um, you know, where would you find something like that in scripture? Where would you find this principle in scripture that like, you know, there's Mm a, there's a group of people who can do a sin and another group of people who can't do a sin. Um, so patient asking questions, being willing to be wrong, being willing to know that you might not be as right as what you think you are. So maintaining a posture of humility. Um, gosh, what else? Um, I would also say not feeling like you need to win the war. Oh, that's good. Um, Krista would say, you know, be willing to to have the next conversation. And sometimes you might need to take a break. We had to take a lot of breaks. You know, to and say, hey, I'm a tap out. I got to tap out right now um, mm. before one of us enters into sin. Like, how do we? <laughs> yes. You know, let's yeah. let's tap out. And, you know, would you mind if we pick this up tomorrow or if we pick this up next week or when can we meet for coffee again so that you can continue to journey with this person? Because it is a journey. Mm. You know, it's it might not be a, a you know, experience where somebody just overnight sees the the light and oh my gosh I've been so wrong but it might be something where it takes a series of conversations where people's paradigm is slowly broken down mm. um and then be gentle you know be gentle be gentle with yourself and thinking that you have to have you know, I have to have it the right answer da, da, da. no you don't like you can say I don't know I don't know the answer to that or you've given me something to think about and be gentle with the person who's sitting in front of you as well and then my last piece of advice would be you don't have to be a punk though either like you don't have to let people talk to you any kind of way and I think that's that's something that's missing in this conversation is that if you bear white skin, you have to allow people to talk to you in any kind of way in order to help bring them along. And I say you don't. Mm. Like you don't have to just let people run over you, talk to you like you're crazy, call you all kind of names and, you know, everything like that. You don't. And you don't have to, um, you know, endure abuse um, in the midst of the conversation. We all want to have the conversation, but we should all do that with respect and with gentleness. That isn't just like the weight for you to bear. If we're going to have a mutual conversation as respectful Christians and adults, you know, gentleness and respect is something that we're all called to, not just white people, not just black people, and not just, you know, Asian Americans. Mm. That's good. I think I'm going to use that tap out thing too in marriage. That might... (laughs) I might keep Nerva from walking into sin. She's been walking into sin lately, sister. So I'm gonna let I'm gonna let her use that tap out. So (laughs) Uh, before I ask these couple more questions, do you have anything, babe? I'm hogging it all. No, I just want you know you've been in this journey for a while, and I wondered, do you with all of it spreading? I mean, it, it it's sort of like taken on the country by storm it would just came with this big huge assumption and you you mm. guys are uh certainly on the front lines battling but do you have hope do you see um do you see people coming out do you see people receiving the message and are you surprised at the number of christians who have um taken on crt 
and I guess I'm asking finally, why is it so attractive? What do you find that, not that you're attracted, that we are attracted to, but what makes CRT such a thing that people are grabbing hold to? I think it, it it's attractive because it gives people, you know, something tangible to do. Not like the word of God doesn't give people something tangible right. to do, but this is something that's been widely accepted by culture. Okay. And so, you know, now I can be a good person. Not like the word of God doesn't tell you how to be a good person, but I can be a good person according to culture. I can be accepted mm. according to culture. I am saddened by the amount of Christians who have, you know, signed up for this this worldview, but um, overly shocked. I don't I don't know okay. that I'm overly shocked because who wants to be a racist? You know, Indeed. like, Indeed. you know, who wants to who wants to be the, the person um, to, you know, mess up the DEI training by standing for truth? Nobody wants to mm. do that. Everybody wants to be accepted. Everyone wants to mm-hmm. um, to find community. I think it's part of our just our humanness, you know, being being made for community. And so how do I maintain my community? I think Mm. that's uh, the conversation that many people aren't having is that it, you know, critical race theory makes it easy to adopt because you'll be accepted, because you'll build community, because, um, you know, you're doing the right thing. This is the new righteousness. Um, Yeah. So... It, it, yeah. it is kind of disheartening, though, because um, or disheartening, not disheartening. It's kind of disheartening, though, because, you know, as Christians and as the church, we are meant to be the light on the hill. And then we shine that light down into to the city below, um, which I kind of look at as being culture. But mm. right now, what I'm seeing is that we've sent people down into culture to bring up the information. And that isn't mm. the way that it's supposed wow. to be. Wow. Okay. Wow, that is good. Um, you know, the, you, you talked about a little bit about Vody Bakum earlier, but you know, he recently wrote a book I thought was so good called Fault Lines. Yeah. But the mm-hmm. the subtitle of it was, um, I think it was something like uh, Evangelicals Looming Catastrophe. And he's talking about the the fault lines like an earthquake. Do you, I'm going to ask you to put your prophetess hat on here for a second. <laughs> but uh, do, do you, do you foresee, cause you're out there, you got You're getting a temperature of what's going on. Do you directionally, do you foresee that coming catastrophe in evangelicalism? Right. Or are you like, no, nah, it's heading the right direction. Or are you kind of just like, I don't really know. No, no. I I think he he kind of hit it on the head with it mm. being a fault line. Um wow. and and I think what what we're going to see is a a separation of um you know, people who believe this way, who are more sociologically inclined in regards to scripture who um you know, live in in more of that postmodern vein and you know, put put it under the blanket of Christianity who's, you know, look at Christianity through that lens. And then you're going to see another group of Christianity who are, you know, trying hard to live according to the precepts of scripture, mm-hmm. who look back to the early church, who um, look to tradition, who are really um, seeking to walk out a, a biblical position and relationship mm-hmm. with God. 
Um, so yeah, I do. I think, and I think we're we're already seeing it. I don't feel like that's a you know a, a prophetic word from the you Lord. Don't have to be too, I too, just think too high that, a prophetess on that. Right? <laughs> no, you, you don't. You don't have to be a prophetess. You just you know you don't even have to. Gotta, be, gotta have eyes. You just gotta be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think uh, yeah, I think I, that's that's probably the case, man. It's unfortunate. I was hoping you'd have some better news for us. Just kind of seeing what's going on but but uh, that's the sense we get is like the the divisions are hardening and they're and there's even surprising like the people that you didn't think would double down on it after being made aware of the issues involved it's really it's really mm-hmm. shocking so man it's it's a crazy time but um you know what advice would you have then uh, you kind of kind of did some of this but specifically for for pastors going into this season where the fault lines are developing, um, should they should they do a class on this at their church? Should they bring in you guys, uh, Center for Biblical Unity, <laughs> for a week training? Like what 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 yes. would what would you advise people to do to kind of prepare for these com- the, the the coming storm if it hasn't already hit them? I would say don't shy away from the conversation. We have to equip people. You know, I'm not a pastor. Um, don't aspire to be a pastor. Don't you know? Like that's not my calling, <laughs> my gift, um, my place. You know, but it. Um, if I could encourage pastors at all, it would be to not shy away from the conversation. To understand that this conversation is on the doorstep of every parishioner in your church, and if if they say that doesn't impact me, I would say they might be sleep. This mm-hmm. conversation is front and center. Everything from LGBT, LGBTQ plus to yeah. critical theory, critical race theory, child studies, all of this stuff is so intertwined mm. that you would literally have to be asleep to say, this doesn't impact me at all. I don't know what you're talking about. So how do you as a leader in impact or influence and encourage your people to understand what's happening. So maybe that is a class. Maybe that is bringing Kristen me in to um, do a couple of talks or to train. We do trainings and um, equip leaders to understand what's happening so that when you meet on a Sunday or a Wednesday or, you know, you're going out to a special picnic with your church or whatever, you know how to check in with your people. Mm. We cannot be ignorant of the fact that people are being impacted by this every day. And so as a leader, I would want to have that conversation. I would want to step in and say, hey, um, you know, Tim, how's it how's it going at your job? I I remember that you, you know, had this stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Have you read this book? It sheds light on that. But too Mm -hmm. often the conversation kind of just acts like it's not the reality, like people aren't being impacted by this. Mm. No, I think I think we can we can do a little bit better in helping to lead the conversation. I do believe that the church should lead this conversation from a historically biblical position without all of the sociological textbooks behind it because scripture gives us what we need for life and godliness. Scripture tells me when something is unjust. How do I know when something is unjust? I don't need a sociology textbook to define injustice for me. The scriptures define injustice and they lay that out now. Can I open my eyes and look into culture? Can I look and, and investigate as to when something is um, being done unjustly? Yes. And I believe as Christians, we should. Doesn't mean that every Christian has to, but as Christians, we should want to know, you know, when injustice is occurring. 
Absolutely. And then we can, I think I said, I've said this before, use our voice, our vote, and our dollar to stand against injustice. But to just automatically assume that an injustice is occurring because of the color of someone's skin yeah. is an error. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's what you're, what you're pointing out. You know, I see that parallel in pretty much most of our education now because it's been secularized, you know, from the long time ago, early 1900s at least with John Dewey. But it's like, you know, when I'll, I'll be talking with people about psychology and, and say, man, the closer they are to the empirical, the better. <laughs> but, you know, you can never get just to the data like they're always going to have presuppositions there. But especially it's at that presuppositional level where the sociologists even get off. It's like, man, some of that stuff's helpful, but a lot of times it's infused with with an idea of justice that's opposed to a biblical idea of justice. And that's that's, in essence, the problem with it. it's not it's not the study, the particular studies and the empirical data. It's what they they bring to the table when they start kind of the way they go at it. And so I think that's so, so helpful to have a biblical framework and then you can, you can kind of interpret those. It gives you the right lens to kind of then look at those things and, and be helped by it. Um, and coming up with more just policy or, you know, how do we interact with these, these kinds of issues. So I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Such a good interview with Monique. Um, If you're interested, we asked her a couple more questions. It's going to be on the Patreon-only channel. One was like, uh, should we have diversity, equity, inclusion departments in Christian schools or churches? And the other one was on the topic of reparations. Is that biblical? Should we we do that or not? In what cases should we do it? So if you're interested in doing that, uh, sign up up to be a Patreon. You can have that episode on there. And we will see you next time. 